0: blaze on demand
1: this is ben weingarten of the blaze books and today i'm joined by douglas sean doug spent more than 30 years as a pollster as well as consulting with democratic candidates and he's also a fox news contributor and co-host of fox news insiders doug has published 11 books and today we're here to talk about the 11th one it's titled the russia china axis the new cold war and america's crisis of leadership doug thanks so much for joining us ben thanks for the introduction pleased to be here This is a book that, personally, I've been looking forward to for a long time. It's always been intuitive to me, and I think many others as well, who care about foreign policy, that Russia and China ally together and with enemies of the U.S. to undermine us. But this book lays it out comprehensively, and it also shows, I think, just as importantly as Russia and China's strengths, how the West is weakening itself and unable to articulate a cohesive, comprehensive strategy to counter them, let alone soberly recognize that there is even a threat to begin with. So my first question to you is, why should every blaze reader pick up this book?
0: Well, basically because we're at risk, and your introduction, again, is exactly right. Uh, Russia and China are working systematically with rogue nations around the world to undermine us, whether it be with Iran, whether it be with North Korea, um, to undermine our bombing campaign now against ISIS. Basically, in the Russia-China axis, I make the argument that we are at risk. And your other point is equally compelling, which is the United States has no strategy and no will to take on an emerging alliance that puts us at as great risk as we've been since the Cold War.
1: And, And Sun Tzu, and I think you mentioned this in the book, said you need to understand your enemy and you need to understand yourself in order to counter those enemies so Let's start with Russia and China individually and how they're seeking to undermine us. What are Russia's one or
0: two greatest strengths and weaknesses, and what are China's one or two greatest strengths sure. and weaknesses? I, I think, sadly, we've seen Russia's greatest strength play itself out uh, in Ukraine, which is a willingness to take territory both inside and now potentially, uh, right. potentially within the NATO alliance. They are expansionist. They've changed the borders of Europe for the first time since the Second World War, and they are increasing their defense budget exponentially, upgrading their nuclear weapons, and have made it clear to us and to the Europeans that they are prepared to take us on. And for the Chinese, we've seen a similar level of uh, expansionism in the East China Sea and the South China Sea, and a willingness to tolerate a nuclear North Korea, which arguably will put us and indeed the world at increasing risk as time goes on.
1: And, of course, you look at the news, and your book is playing itself out every single day. While most people in the West are focused on ISIS, in Hong Kong, China is exerting strength that we have not yet seen to date. How does Hong Kong play into this, and and what's its broader significance?
0: Sure. Again, good question. In Hong Kong, you have upwards of 80,000 people demonstrating against Beijing. I have not seen an assertive and full-throated American defense, much less support of the democracy activists, quite the opposite. And I think we have every reason to believe that the Chinese leadership led by Xi Jinping will crack down potentially as they did in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. And if they do that, we will all be losers. And at this point, there's no reason to believe that there'll be any real resistance to Chinese efforts to undermine the authentic will of the people of Hong Kong.
1: So editorializing it, and this really applies to all of these crises around the world, the U.S. is in effect a paper tiger because while it at times talks a tough game, it doesn't back it up with actions that even are even close to matching the rhetoric. I want to talk a little bit about, and you go into great depths, about rogue regimes and the allies that Russia and China has built with these regimes, which are largely mutually beneficial. Speak a little bit to the China-Iran relationship, and then I want to jump into the cybersecurity threats, which to me, beyond all of these other threats, and we could talk about EMPs, we can talk about nuclear weapons, uh, the cybersecurity threat to me seems maybe primary above all others. But, But first, let's talk about China and
0: Iran. Well, the, the Chinese are doing business with Iran. They, are, um, uh, they have an active energy trade. They are clearly flouting sanctions. And there is no reason to believe that anything that we have done in terms of the, uh, ourselves or the UN or the world community has in any way impacted uh, on the Chinese. They have full uh, economic uh, and, I dare say, probably military relations. And this is all part of their alliance uh, with the Russians and their desire to propagate their influence around the world.
1: And, of course, that that Russian and Chinese influence exists really throughout the Middle East, and in particular with Russia and Iran, Russia and Syria. It sort of parallels nicely and builds on the relationships that Russia built with its proxies in the Middle East during the Cold War.
0: That is absolutely right. One thing I would underscore for your listeners um then is that uh when we announced the bombing campaign against isis the most prominent objectors were russia and china they basically said you can't bomb a sovereign nation to its syria without the approval of the syrian government who is a close ally of the russians obviously because of the russians an ally of the Chinese as well. And what that means is the Russians and the Chinese are basically saying we're out. Uh, we're not part of this effort. So the, uh, Middle East is in turmoil. There are beheadings. There are tens of thousands of Christians, if not more being slaughtered. A state is being set up. Uh, and, uh, what, uh, what is the Russian and China response? Uh, Uh, defer to Bashar Assad? What could be more bone-chilling?
1: And, of course, you also have, with Hezbollah, weapons that basically, by way of Iran, which may have originated from Russia or China, going to Hezbollah and other threats in the region as well. And, And all of this is kind of on the back burner. Yet, you know, because we see images of ISIS beheading people, that becomes a primary threat. And I think As you rightly point out, there are other actors behind each of these
0: situations, and we're kind of letting them off the hook and ignoring it. You know, when you get to groups like Hezbollah and Hamas and the like, there isn't a lot of uh, necessarily contemporaneous evidence that shows the direct links. At the same time, there's almost no evidence of Russia or China ever trying to restrain groups that we consider Promoting terrorism. And in fact, if anything, we have to assume that they passively or actively support the efforts and aims of groups like uh, Hamas and uh, Hezbollah. And I guess before we jump
1: into cybersecurity, one more fundamental question. It's clear that Russia and China back certain regimes in the Middle East. There have even been direct links that have shown, for example, you can go back to Yasser Arafat. There's evidence that he was a KGB agent. You talked in your book about Lipanyanko a Russian spy who defected and went to Great Britain and was killed by basically ingesting a nuclear weapon, in effect. And he talked about in his book, I'm on one of the leaders of al-Qaeda training in Russia. My question for you is, Do you believe that Islamic supremacists are a greater threat than Russia
0: and China or a lesser threat than Russia and China to the Western world? I I believe they are all linked. I believe Russia and China are doing virtually nothing to suppress uh, Islamic extremism. I think when Putin came to Bush after uh, 9-11 and said we should work together and did not get the sort of full-throated endorsement he expected, Putin basically said, well, every nation for, their, uh, for themselves and the Russians, as we saw in the um, Boston uh, Marathon bombing, uh, have been less than cooperative and less than fully supportive of American interests and American security. So I think the two problems exist uh, side by side, and it's hard for me to say which one is worse, given that North Korea and Iran pose threats to the stability of the world, and ISIS has said it's coming to the United States uh, and Europe quickly, and we have seen an uh, unimaginable level of brutality. Now, transitioning to sort of direct threats to the West,
1: not through proxies, but directly by way of Russia and China, you spend a great deal of time in your book talking about these cyber threats, as I mentioned before. First first example, talk about Telvent and the implications of Chinese intelligence units hacking into it, which actually follows from a thriller that was written earlier this year. I don't know if you had a chance to read it, The Prince of Risk, which talks about just a scenario that involved Telvent where Chinese intelligence could hack into a system which could effectively shut down infrastructure around the world. Well,
0: that really is the point. And let me just back up a second. It is one thing to have uh, cyber uh, security or cyber initiatives as a defensive measure to protect ourselves or, as I think we saw with Stuxnet and Iran, to try to disable nuclear pro- programs. Uh, it is a quite another thing to have state-sponsored cyber uh, threats to our nation, to our national security, and to our infrastructure, to our grid, to corporations, and to our government in ways that uh, could potentially disable us, both individually or as part of a larger effort to uh, wage uh, war or, uh, at the very least, conflict with the United States. And both the Chinese, through the Chinese People's Army, and the Russians, through hackers and, I think, state-sponsored efforts as well, have made it very clear by word and by deed that this is something they're willing to consider and countenance. And, look, I I just think we have to be prepared to fight fire with fire, and hopefully we will recognize that uh, Russia and China are not our friends, are not going to really uh, help us, notwithstanding the lip service they may pay.
1: You talk about, as well, in both georgia in 2008 and more recently in estonia the fact that russia through hackers literally shut down basically the crucial intelligence and communication systems in georgia and estonia before going into those countries lay out sort of the doomsday template for what a nation like russia can do using its hacking technology
0: yeah i think we can be really simple and really scary without being uh, in a position to exaggerate, which is Russia can shut countries down, they can shut governments down, they can destabilize industries and potentially destabilize our own government, as can the Chinese. And they have shown a willingness to do it, given your mention of Estonia and Georgia, and an inclination to um, uh, expand, not retard their efforts. So this is just another aspect that doesn't get the amount of time and attention that it necessarily should or could.
1: You also talk about, and this contrasts with Ronald Reagan's notion of nuclear zero, however idealistic that was, basically the fact that Obama also wants a world in which there are zero nuclear weapons. And right now we've agreed through New START, various other initiatives to reduce our nuclear stockpiles while our enemies, including Russia, and I don't even believe that we officially call Russia an enemy, increase the size of their nuclear stockpiles. Frame for readers the direction that we are going on nuclear weapons and our enemies are going on nuclear
0: weapons. Yeah, you, you summarized it very well, Ben. We are reducing our arsenal. We are investing less, all the while our enemies are exponentially increasing their uh, expenditures, making more sophisticated weapons, flouting arms control agreements. And I don't know if you saw, but uh, uh, Vladimir Putin announced a couple of weeks ago that he was taking titular control personally of the Russian arms control agency. So we have a crisis here and one that's both been unacknowledged and undiscussed.
1: And and while it's sort of hushed in the Western media – You can point to numerous anecdotes from both China and Russia of sort of offhanded, joking, but not really joking mentions of the fact that, look, you know, we have nuclear weapons. It would be a shame if we had to actually use them, or you can talk about the financial nuclear weapon for, for China, and I grant that it's a bit of mutually assured destruction today, but the fact that China holds a massive amount of our debt and if they were to liquidate their positions, that would cripple the U.S. dollar as well. I find it, you know, it's, it's unsettling that their rhetoric
0: basically goes unchecked. What's your comment on that? It, my comment is that it's more than rhetoric. It's reality um, that we do not have a response in place to deal with them, and it's all well and good whether you be a Democrat or a Republican to talk about a nuclear-free world. But when our adversaries are going in the opposite direction, we have to, in my judgment, upgrade, rearm, and face reality as we know it to be.
1: Underlying all of these policies, and you speak to this, and I think it's so critical and it's so often lost, is the fact that even during the Cold War, many of those on the Soviet side will say and have written that the most powerful weapon of the West was our ideas, that Radio Free Europe and other initiatives to push countering ideas to the communists were ultimately what helped us overcome them. Those ideas flourished. Today there are market economies, granted Russia and China, I'd call them sort of oligopolies and it's, it's state capitalism as you write in the book. You talk about the fact that it's harder today to counter Russia, China and others as a result of actually having a free flow of information and capital, both human capital and monetary capital. Talk a little bit about how freeing up the world to some degree has made it more dangerous for the U.S. and other Western nations.
0: Well, we are are in a world now that is not aligned like it was in the Cold War where there were clear sides, it was state-sponsored activities versus other state-sponsored activities with what you referred to correctly before as proxy nations doing people's bidding. Right now you have state and non-state actors, you have a level of communication and, I dare say, propagation of weapons and tools of uh, uh, mass destruction that are un- un- understood and unrecognized. And so we are, at, in my judgment, as great if not greater risk than we were in the Cold War, and part of the reason is because we just don't know the full dimensions of the threat, and to the extent they have been uh, outlined, they've not been fully articulated and understood
1: looking at this from the opposite perspective, as you say in the book, it's not that we are losing to these enemies. It's really that we're not fighting them in effect. You know, we have stronger resources. We are downgrading those resources and not utilizing our assets properly, but we still have them. And I would say that also a perverse silver lining to U.S. retrenchment or I would argue in the Middle East, actively aiding and abetting folks that are against the West, has been that, for example, Egypt and Israel's relationship is probably stronger than it's ever been. Japan is realizing that it may have to go it alone, potentially, at some point in Asia. I guess my question is, is there sort of a silver lining, in effect, to the Obama administration, which is that the rest of the world realizes that the U.S. may not always be there?
0: Yeah, I think the simple answer to your question is yes. What the Egyptians, the Saudis, and the Israelis all have in common is they recognize that uh, while we call ourselves the one indispensable nation, our degree of indispensability has been declining, not increasing, and that they may and do have to go it alone frequently. And I think the uh, recent uh, fight between Hamas and Israel was settled more because of the instigation of the Egyptians than because of anything that we did. So I think there is a greater willingness of nations to go on their own. The dark side of this, Ben, which scares me, is the fact that if you look at the comments from leaders of, you know, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and the like, there's a recognition that the United States cannot be counted on or that the United States is MIA, and that is a great tragedy and one that is still playing out as we speak. The name of the book is The Russia-China Axis. The author is Doug Schoen. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. Ben, thank you so much for having me, and thanks so much for very useful and constructive questions.
1: For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash books and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.